0: First John chapter 5, let's begin reading in verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Again, throughout the study, as you are very well aware, we've examined eight tests of fellowship provided by John, and I've been reviewing these regularly because, again, the reason for that is because chapter 5 is a summarization of these eight tests, and we find the same thing true tonight in our study, and I'll point that out in a moment. But in chapter 2, 3 through 6, we saw the obedience test, chapter 2, 7 through 14, the love test, chapter 2, 15 through 17, the life test, chapter 2, 18 through 24, the truth test, Chapter 2, 25 through 29, the righteousness test. uh, Chapter 3, 1 through 10, the sanctification test. Chapter 4, 1 through 6, the discernment test. Chapter 4, 15 through 18, the fear test or perfect love. And so we discovered in our last study of this passage that John begins the conclusion of this epistle by summarizing the truths he has previously declared within this letter. And within this summarization of his teaching, John answers this question which is, how do we know, how do we understand what is the foolproof evidence that, there, that one is in a genuine relationship and biblical fellowship with God the Father? And so, in verse 13, John writes, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. This verse, not only does this, does this portion of chapter, chapter 5 and this portion of chapter 5, again, not only does it provide a summarization of the previous truths John has declared throughout these chapters, and the previous chapters are the previous portions of this epistle, but this verse, verse 13 of chapter 5 as well, is the sum of all that John has declared within this entire epistle within itself. For instance, we read again, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Within verse 13, John not only sums up john 's purpose in writing this epistle, but he also explains the significance of the purpose and need for this epistle to have been written he says i 've written these things to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, and remember the whole problem that John was facing was the opposition of those who would declare that either Jesus was not the Christ, he is not the Messiah, or that Jesus or that the Messiah did not come in the flesh and so John was battling these, these issues, if you were, confronting them. And John, as an eyewitness of Christ, in chapter 1, he clearly states that he had heard, seen, handled, beheld, if you will, um, the the very word of life, which is Jesus Christ himself. And then he says this. He says, okay, here's the significance, that ye may believe on him, that you may know that ye have eternal life. And we saw last week that the word know in this verse means to see. And again, it implies the, the cognitive understanding. So, in other words, the word no refers to one possessing an intellectual understanding provided by the presence of information. So the intellectual understanding is the result of the presence of the information that has been provided. Now this is important, as I said last week, because we live in a time which it is, it is apparent, not only within churches, but as well this has crept into the church, that emotionalism, sensationalism seems to be the driving force and all logic and all intelligence seems to just be dismissed or set aside. And one of the one of the tragedies of, of the modern day church in America has been that people no longer intellectually approach the Scriptures. Now, I'm not talking about. That we understand the truth of God through our minds that 's not what I 'm saying, but we are to study, we are to examine, we are to be diligent in the truth of god 's word, not be controlled and swept away by emotions or, or sensationalism and Today, within the church, it would it, it surely seems as though that well it's not it doesn 't just seem to be it, it is true that there is this this movement, overwhelming movement of emotions, sensationalism, and what happens is truth is not approached from a sobering uh, mindset, but rather from this, this, this uh, position of, of feeling and how it makes me feel or what I feel or what I get out of this. And so when John writes this, he's not saying, oh, I, I really am concerned to make certain that every morning when you wake up that you really feel like you're saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we know these things. We have a cognitive, intellectual understanding of the truth of our salvation because of the evidences that are present, that have been presented, and it's by these evidences that we, that we see, that we understand, that we even are confident of the truth of our relationship and fellowship with God. So, I, look, I'm thankful for this, and you should be too if you understand what John is doing here. He, I'm thankful that salvation is not dependent at all on how I feel. And you should be... As thankful as well it 's not about your feelings it 's about the truth and the evidences that John provides within these tests that he has given and so when it, the word "know" in this verse again means to see and it, it implies that cognitive understanding is present. so John explains that he has written this epistle with all the eight tests provided therein that one might possess the understanding provided by all the evidence of the scriptures that one is in genuine fellowship with the lord this isn 't something we 're not seeking for a feeling we 're not seeking Uh, for some emotion we're not seeking for something outside to convince us that, that we are we know the lord no it's the evidence that is flowing from within because of the presence of the spirit of god that is the overwhelming factor and proof that we are in fellowship with christ and so john is is stating that here very clearly Furthermore, eternal life, which is the result of a genuine relationship and fellowship with the Lord, is the joy of which John spoke in chapter 1, verse 4, and these things write we unto you, he said, that your joy may be full. So he says, I- I've written all this, or we-, we will write this, we do write this, that your joy might be full, and then again, uh, he says here in chapter 5, 13, these things have I written unto you. So now he's saying past tense, I've already done it, and he says all this was that you For you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may have eternal life. And this truly is the joy. The joy is knowing Christ. The fullness of joy is knowing Him, who is our joy. And it's knowing that we have eternal life. We understand that we have a a life eternal because we possess Christ. He goes on to say, And that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Through such confidence that our relationship and fellowship with the Lord is authentic, as proven by His word, we grow in our belief of who Jesus is, and we grow in our knowledge of Him. In the first portion of the verse, John declared again, verse 13, these things have I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Then verse 13, he goes on to say, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So to know Jesus, as I mentioned last week, is to desire to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. And the more we know him, the more we are aware we become and are that we know so little of him that there is to know of him. It is this truth that drives us to a greater desire and continued desire to know him more. Look, <clears throat> when I was 12 years old and came to faith, Uh, in Christ. I knew that God loved me. I knew that God had rescued me. I knew that I loved the Lord. I loved Jesus. That's pretty much what I knew. I knew, of course, that he had came. He had died. He had risen again. He was ascended unto the Father. I knew that he represented me. I understood those things. Even as a 12-year-old child, I'd been taught these truths. So I understood as one who was in Christ that these things were true. But hear me, I did not know anything of Christ. And I would say that the more I have grown and learned and matured in the faith and knowledge of God and of Christ, the more desire it has cultivated within me, a greater desire to know Him even more. And I've said this for many years, that the more I know Him, the more aware I am of how little I know of Him, because there is so much to know of Him. Now, when I say know of Him, I'm not talking about quote-unquote Bible stories, I'm talking about seeing who he really is, understanding what he has really done, and understanding who I am in him and who he is in me, and how how that is manifested in real life that we live, and so I grow and continue in the knowledge of Christ, and that creates a desire, cultivates a desire within me to know him even more. And unlike many things that may bring discouragement because we think we know something, and Paul even spoke to this, says if a man thinks he knows something, he knows not anything as he ought. (laughs) And and so the point is that, you know, the more we know of some things, we realize we really don't know much of anything at all, the one point we may thought we did. And that can be discouraging, but when it comes to Christ, it's nothing but encouraging. Oh, I realize that I have limited knowledge of him, but that's not discouraging to me. It is, it, it, it is a joyful thing to know that there's so much more to learn of him and that he does not withhold himself from me. So it's not there's something, I, I, oh, I, I can never know. No, I never will know all there is to know of him. That would be an ongoing thing because he's eternal. He's always been. But yet, it is exciting and encouraging to think that I continue to grow in my knowledge of him and the desire. Rather than being discouraging, I am encouraged in knowing that I will always continue to know him and continue to grow in knowledge of him. So it's an encouraging truth. Within our study of these three verses, verses 13, 14, and 15, which we've read these this evening already, these verses make up the first portion of John's conclusion to this epistle. And we discover that within these verses that John explains the confidence that we have in Jesus. Now, as we have already discovered within the previous verses, John has explained that to have Jesus is to have eternal life. We actually, it's funny, over the last several weeks, it seems like what we've dealt with in our study in our theology class kind of just is rolling over into our study in 1 John. And that's not something I'm intentionally doing. It's just how it has been because of where we are in our study of soteriology in our theology class. And so as we we look at 1 John chapter 5, 11 through 13, and this is what we read, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. As is the case with the armor Paul mentions in Ephesians 6, which we've been studying on Sunday mornings, this eternal life, as with the spiritual armor in Ephesians 6, is not in addition to Jesus, but it is that which has been provided in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is life, and he is life eternal. So when John says that if we have the Son, we have life, if we have not the Son, we have not life, what he's saying is if you have the Son, we have eternal life, if Jesus is life and Jesus is eternal, then Jesus' life is eternal life. So if you have Jesus, guess what you have? You have eternal life. We can have confidence that we possess eternal life as evidenced by these tests proven or provided by John in this epistle. So let me, and this is, a, this is an added bonus for you, okay? Just something to throw out there for you in relation to this, but we're not going to deal with this in great depth. One could only lose eternal life if they were to lose Jesus. And furthermore, Jesus was never lost. We were. So we did not find Jesus, but Jesus found us. So to have him is to have eternal life. Verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. John has stated that we have eternal life, which is of unparalleled importance. Yet John continues to explain that the evidence of possessing eternal life through fellowship with Jesus Christ has personal implications as well. As As I have stated many times concerning this fifth chapter, John, again, is summarizing the truths he has explained within the previous chapters, which he does once again within this passage. Look at chapter 3 in verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God, and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, when we live our lives in agreement with God's word, being enlightened by the truth of God's word, word by his spirit within us then our hearts do not condemn us that's what john is saying by living in submission to the will of god we can have confidence that god not only hears but also that he will answer our prayers so in chapter 3 21 and 22 john references the fact that whatever we ask we receive of him and he goes on to say that if our heart condemn us if he begins then we have confidence toward god and whatsoever we ask we receive of him because we keep his commandments and again keeping his commandments does not merely mean we just do the law, but rather we love truth, we love righteousness, we desire after God, after righteousness, after truth, we cherish those things, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Well, first and foremost, what is pleasing in His sight is obedience unto the gospel, which is a recognition by faith alone that I have no way to God, I am not pleasing to God, and I cannot be pleasing to God. So the one thing that's pleasing to God is our recognition that we cannot please God. And in doing so, then we recognize that it's Christ who has pleased God, and so we rest and trust in the sufficiency of the provision God has made for us in Jesus Christ. And so to to do those things pleasing in His sight means a life of righteousness follows after the imputation of righteousness within us, which is given to us by God in Christ. And so now righteousness flows from me because righteousness has been imputed unto me, and because Christ lives within, now His presence is evident, and it's going to be living His life Within and with and out of my life, because my life is not my life, it is his life. And so we have life because we have Christ, but not only do we have life, we have eternal life because we have Christ, because Christ is life eternal. So if we are to understand the power of the passage, this passage of Scripture, we must first, first understand what prayer is. And to understand this truth, we must also understand what prayer is not. Because John is saying, if any man. Uh, This is the confidence we have, verse 14 of chapter 5. If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know we receive that which we've desired of him. Basically, is what John is saying. And then in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 3, he says, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Our heart doesn't condemn us. We have confidence toward God. We know. God hears us, and we know we we receive what we ask. So in order to really understand the power of this passage, we must understand again what prayer is and what prayer is not. So first of all, what prayer is not. Prayer is not the means by which a man can change God. But prayer is the means by which God changes men by bringing man into submission to his will and his purpose. So when our hearts are in tune with God, which is evidenced by a life of submission, then we seek after that which God desires, and we will not desire to change God's plan, but rather we desire that God's purpose be fulfilled, even if that means we must be changed and our desires be changed. Think of it like this. If I'm in fellowship with God, if I'm in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, walking, let let me clarify that. As a believer, I am in fellowship with him, but I can hinder that fellowship. But if I am walking in fellowship with the Lord, which means that I am walking by faith, believing God, which means that I am submitted to him, because the only way I can be in fellowship with him is if I am in, in submission to him. Would you not agree with that? If I am not in submission to him, then whose will am I concerned with? My own. So, the only way for me to be in fellowship with the Lord, walking in fellowship with Him, is for me to be submitted to Him. So, if I'm in submission to Him, that means I'm in submission to His will, which means that whatever I ask is going to be according to His will, or at least, let me say it like this that I am aware that what I'm asking, if for some reason this is not according to His will, that I am willingly, submissively saying, Lord, This is what I think to be best as I understand it. This is what I would desire because I believe this would be pleasing unto you. But, if I am wrong, then Father, just change me that your will is accomplished and that I rejoice in your will being accomplished, not desiring something other than your will. Again, we've dealt with this previously, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Remember, not my will, but thine be done. And when one's life is truly submitted to the Heavenly Father's will, the Lord's will becomes more sought after than one's own will and desires. Listen, we, we because, of a selfish, or because of a sinful nature, the sinful flesh which we possess, we are selfish by nature. We are. I, I like what I like. I want what I want. Aren't you the same? You want what I want? Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, you mean you want, you want. Okay, all right, just clarifying. No, I want what I want, I want, I, I, I like what I like, and you are the same way. And so what is the what is the only answer to that? That I must submit to the Lord's will and if I am truly walking in fellowship with the Lord, do you know what I really desire? Yeah, I still may want things, but you know what I desire even more than my own desires? is His desire, His will to be accomplished. And I want to rejoice in His will, regardless of whether that not, not, not that, that is in agreement with my will, with what I might desire. Now look, and you can actually desire things that are godly, and you can desire things that in themselves would be right, but that doesn't mean that that is the direction that God... God does all things right and, and holy, of course. But God, His thoughts and His ways are far beyond ours. And we must understand that just because something is godly from our perspective or even maybe godly even according to Scripture, that, and we pray that way in this circumstance, that may not be the manner in which God is going to work. And he'll still do that which is holy and that which is righteous without question. My point being this, that just because to pray selfishly uh, is not merely to to pray against the truth of Scripture, but to pray selfishly is also to pray that that God do what we want and we're not satisfied and content in him and his purpose being fulfilled unless it aligns with our purpose and will, even if it's things that are right. Let me give you an example. This may seem very simple. So when our hearts are in tune with God, which is evidenced by a life of submission, then it's not our desires that are important, even though we are to make our petitions known before him. But as Christ prayed in the garden, so should we pray, not my will but thine be done. In other words, if what I am asking is not in alignment with what you have purposed, then Lord, I don't desire What I'm asking, I desire greater that your will be accomplished. And by the way, let's consider the words of Christ, not my will, but not me done. That was a tremendous personal sacrifice, was it not? So within chapter 5, 14, and 15, John revisits this matter of confidence that God hears and answers the prayers of those who are in fellowship with him. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. So if one is walking in fellowship with the Lord, it requires that one submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which is to submit to the will of God. And we find that Jesus Christ himself was totally submitted to, will, to the will of the Father as we see demonstrated throughout his earthly life. For instance, in his childhood, in Luke 2, 43-49, uh, and when they would fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem... And Joseph and his mother knew of it, or knew not of it, but they supposing him to have been in the company went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? here you find Jesus at twelve years old in the temple teaching and answering questions of those who had committed their lives to the law. And he's answering their questions and teaching them. And then Mary and Joseph come and they say, Well, why why did you do this? Why did you and he said, Did you not know? Do you not understand? I must be about my father's business, not Joseph, of course, talking about the Lord, about God the Father. He's saying, I must be about his business. So even in his childhood, he submitted to the Father and the Father's will. How about in his earthly ministry, John 4, 34? Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Again, the context is the disciples come and says they say, if anyone brought him anything to eat, and Jesus says, wait a minute, my nourishment, my meat, is to do the will of the Father. John 5.30, Jesus said, I can of mine own self do nothing, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own, but the will of the Father which has sent me. So Jesus says, I'm not seeking after my own will individually independently of that of the Father. He says, I am seeking after the Father's will, that the Father's will be accomplished. That's my desire. John 6.37-40, all the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then in his death, in Luke 22, 37-42, For I say unto you that this, is, this that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me, And he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it it is enough. And he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So if Jesus was submitted to the Father and we are in fellowship with Jesus Christ, then we as well must be in submission to the Father to be walking in fellowship with Him. Now, I'm in fellowship with Him even if I sin. Now, I hinder that fellowship, but the fellowship is still... I'm His Son, I'm in this relationship, and the fellowship still exists. God does not give us new fellowship. God restores us to the fellowship that we do have with Him as we are walking in His truth. So if I'm in submission to the Father, if I'm in submission to His will, if I'm in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that means that I am walking in fellowship with Him. Therefore, to be walking in fellowship with Him, I must be submitted to the God the the Father, I must be submitted to His will, and I must be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So you cannot separate one from the other. If I'm in fellowship with Him, then that means I am thinking as He thinks. That means I am doing as he does. Are you seeing this? Because I'm in fellowship. We are sharing. What are we sharing? What is fellowship? That is to be partnership, partners with. If I'm in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's in fellowship with me, what is it that I am sharing? Well, love is part of it, but without this, you wouldn't even have the love. Truth, yes. It is the gospel, all these things are true, but this you're, you're missing what John is even talking about in the whole text, which is eternal life. So what am I sharing and I am sharing in his life and he is truth. he is the good news. all these things are true, but I he, and, and he is love the love of God personified, but it is his life that I am sharing. Remember what what the Scripture says, that we might be partakers of... He hath made us to be partakers of the divine nature. Do you remember that? Partakers of the divine nature. What is the divine nature? It is the very person of God. And He's made us to be partakers. How? Because who is it who dwells within us? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ... Christ dwells within us. His Spirit dwells within us. So now I am sharing in His life. So if I'm sharing in His life, then I have... And notice, all this ties together. I'm Sharing in His life, that means I have the mind of Christ. I have the Spirit of Christ. Are you seeing this? How could I have his spirit? How could I have his mind? How could I be walking in fellowship and not thinking as he thinks, not living as he lives? Because it's his life. And John is saying eternal life. This is the confidence we have in him. He's already said we have eternal life. And then he says that we ask, and when we ask, we know he hears, and the confidence is he hears, and we know if he hears, the confidence confidence then is that he answers. But why? Because we are in fellowship with Him. And we do all things that are pleasing to God. Remember that which pleases Him, we read earlier, keeping His commandments, that which is pleasing to Him. Well, what is pleasing to Him? That we submit to Him that Christ lived through us. That is the only thing that pleases God the Father. So John is expounding on that even further here in this text, explaining it even more so, and saying that we have eternal life, and we know because we are in fellowship with the Lord, that we now pray and are heard and are answered. So I say all of this so we might understand the truth of what John is saying in this portion of the epistle, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. How am I asking according to his will? Does that mean I say, Lord, if you're willing? Is that what that means? Is that, is that asking according to his will? No, it's I'm submitted to him. I am in tune with him. I am thinking as he thinks. His spirit is living within me, is my life. Are you following? Therefore, why would I not be asking that which is pleasing to him? And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we we desire of him. Our confidence is not in God hearing us, but notice our confidence is in Jesus Christ. And this is the confidence that we have in him. And and the confidence is in Him, but yet because of that, we are confident in Him, in who He is, and what He has done, and who we are in Him. Because we are confident in Him, we can ask things according to His will, because we have His mind, it's His spirit that lives in us, we have His word, we know what God desires according to His word, and we are to be aligned and in submission to these truths. It is only because we are in Jesus Christ that God hears us at all, and as we pray in him, which means we are praying as Jesus prayed according to the Father's will, then we know that the Father hears and answers our prayer. In conclusion, let me state this. I've said this to you before, but I believe it's worthy to repeat. If you want God to answer your prayers as you desire for them to be answered, then all you have to do is submit to the Lord as he changes you and your desires according to his will. You want your prayers to be answered exactly like you pray them every time? I have the answer. Foolproof. Absolute. Without exception, God will answer your prayers every time as you pray them if you'll just pray according to His will. I didn't say if you say according to His will, if you pray according to His will. when you des- Here, Here's the bottom line. You desire... What God desires, he'll answer that every time, just as you pray. it. That's wonderful news. But it's not always what we want to hear. <laughs> because what we want to hear is that there's some secret word, some secret code, some secret language, some, some, some performance that we can involve ourselves in that will get God's attention to do what we want him to do. Listen. God is not interested in doing what we want him to do, but we should be very interested in what God is doing and praying accordingly. The power of prayer is not in what it can do in some mystical manner, but rather the power of prayer is in how God uses it spiritually to align us with his will and his purpose. Look, that is powerful. It is powerful that God is able, through me praying to him in submission, humbling myself before him, to change my desires to align with his desires. I may want something exceedingly. I may want something and have a deep desire for it to be or to come to pass. But you know what's even more powerful than that God answering that prayer to bring it to pass is whenever God is able, despite my desire, even if it's a good desire for God, when God is able to take me and humble me to submit me to align with his purpose and desire and to bring me to a point where I can honestly say, I desire that your will be done, God, more than even that which I ask. So if this is not according to your will, then Lord, I rejoice in your will being accomplished. And that's powerful because what that, do, what that is doing is it's bringing us to a place of submission to align with God. Again, I've said this so many times, but here's how most people view it. Here is God, here I am, and I'm going to pray. This is my connection to God. So I'm going to pray, and through my prayer, I'm going to drag God over to align with what I want. He's going to do what I want. No, it doesn't work that way. Here is God, and here I am, and guess what? I'm praying, I'm saying, God, I want you to do this, and God's saying, ah, no, how about you come where I am? How about you submit to me? How about how about if I do my will and you rejoice in what I'm doing? How about that instead? And so the Lord works in that way. He aligns us with his will. He aligns us with his purpose. In a manner in which we can honestly say, Lord, here are my petitions, and this is what this is what I desire, and I believe I'm desiring this out of a heart to follow after you out of a out of heart for your glory to be revealed. This is truly my desire. Yet, nonetheless, it's not about my will being accomplished. It's about your will being done, even at personal cost. Is that not the example Jesus provided for us? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, even at my own, the sake of my life, may your will be accomplished. May your will be performed.